Welcome to Music History Monday for December 19th, 2022. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Getting Personal, Edith Piaf. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the birth on December 19, 1915, 107 years ago today, of the French singer and actress Edith Piaf, whose name I will from here on out pronounce in English as Edith, in the Belleville district of Paris. Born Edith Giovanna Gassion, she came to be considered France's national chanteuse, one of the most celebrated singers of the 20th century. She was a French combination of Judy Garland, Barbara Streisand, and Billie Holiday. She died in Place Cassier, near the French Riviera city of Nice, on October 10, 1963, all too young at the age of 47. Way too personal. I will be forgiven for making today's post personal. It's just going to happen sometimes. I was first married in August of 1981. I was 27 years old and my betrothed was 23 at the time of our marriage. We were young. Frankly, chronological years notwithstanding, I was far younger than my bride. Together we made two wonderful babies, our daughter Rachel, now 36 years old, and our son Samuel, now 32. Our marriage lasted for 17 years. Based on the frankly terrifying statistics out there, our marriage lasted considerably longer than the seven to eight year average of the 50% of marriages that fail in the United States. Three years after our breakup, I became involved with another woman, someone who was 20 years my junior. Yes, the age difference was extreme and it did not go over well with my ex. But once again, chronological age meant nothing. Diane was an old soul, with an emotional age many decades beyond mine. She was smart, funny, and a brilliant professional-grade flutist. I was smitten, besotted, and hopelessly and forever taken with her. We moved in together in 2000. On September 11th, 2001, our phone rang at a little after 6 a.m. Pacific time. We were still asleep. It was my daughter Rachel, 15 years old at the time and an early riser, telling us to turn on our television. We did so and proceeded to watch, like every one of us with our jaws hanging open, as that awful day's events unfolded. My parents were among the many millions who watched everything live and in real time from their apartment terrace high on New Jersey's Palisades overlooking the Hudson River and Manhattan. Looking back, it is difficult to believe, given our present national dysfunctionality, 
how united we were as a nation during that post-9-11 autumn of 2001. I can only wish that we could recapture something of that spirit without first having to suffer such a national trauma. Among the many immediate consequences of 9-11 was that the travel industry, airlines in particular, was creamed. Entirely new security procedures had to be created and implemented at airports, and airport entrances and lobby spaces had to be rebuilt in light of these new security protocols. Even the planes were changed. Cockpit doors were rebuilt to withstand a small nuclear blast. Yes, yes, the rest of the plane would vaporize, but that cockpit door would survive. Plastic utensils and plastic drinking cups replaced metal utensils and drinking glasses in business and first class, and meal services in economy class on domestic U.S. flights were discontinued entirely. From a gastronomic point of view, the latter was not such a terrible thing. In the United States, all airline flights remained grounded until September 14, 2001. And though air travel did resume on a limited basis on September 14, 2001, very few people were initially willing to get on an airplane. I had to fly to New York for a long-planned meeting on October 16th. San Francisco and Newark airports were nearly empty, but for the fully armed, Kevlar-jacketed National Guard troops who were everywhere. It was clear that the only people traveling at the time were grudgingly doing so for business. It was weird. As I recall things, the word weird describes the entire fall of 2001. No doubt we were all angry and grieving, but I also remember a sense of focus, of clarity, of heightened awareness, for lack of a better word, a sense of aliveness that autumn of 2001. You know, I felt the same sort of thing during the week following the 1989 earthquake. I rode the quake out in a house in San Francisco that came close to collapsing. For the week that followed, I experienced some sort of deeply embedded survivor's euphoria. At least, that's what I assumed it was at the time. So, the fall of 2001 was a super intense, super memorable time. I saw and felt that intensity with my family and friends, with my students and colleagues at the San Francisco Conservatory, and in my relationship with Diane, who I realized wasn't likely to sit around and wait on me forever. With that truism knocking around in my admittedly thick head, I went out and bought a diamond ring and hid it in the pocket of a jacket, assuming that I'd know when would be the right time to offer it up. Meanwhile, by November 2001, things were looking downright dire for the airlines, particularly their international routes. Almost no one was flying into the United States and almost no one was flying out. Hotels were empty on both sides of the Atlantic and Pacific. And that's when Diane suggested to me that we should take a trip. I asked whether we should be enjoying ourselves during such a time. Hell yes, we decided. As I recall, 
and my powers of recollection are excellent. We spent something under $400 for two round-trip tickets to Paris on United. We booked our stay at the Hotel Jeux de Palme, a hotel built into what had been a tennis court constructed for King Louis XIII in 1634 on the Ile Saint-Louis, immediately adjacent to the Ile de la Cité and Notre Dame Cathedral. Yes, lucky me, I have stayed exclusively at the Hôtel Jeux de Palme in my many trips to Paris since that one in 2001. Diane and I arrived on December 21, 2001. Boy, oh boy, our timing was very good, because the very next day international travel was once again shut down. That's because on December 22nd, a passenger on American Airlines Flight 63 from Paris to Miami smelled smoke in the cabin shortly after a meal service. A flight attendant named Hermi Moutardier walked down the aisle trying to figure out where the smell was coming from. It was coming from a passenger named Richard Reed, who was attempting to light a fuse leading into one of his shoes. This grade A numbnut was restrained by passengers using, we are told, plastic handcuffs. Okay, in all of my travels, I never knew that plastic handcuffs were among the on-flight safety supplies, seat belt extensions, leather waist belts, and headphone cords. A doctor on board administered a tranquilizer, and the flight was diverted to Logan International in Boston. As it turned out, the explosives in Reed's shoe failed to detonate because of the rainy weather in Paris prior to his departure and Reed's own foot perspiration, all of which made the fuse too damp to ignite. For our information, the shoe bomber Richard Colvin Reed, also known as Abdel Rahim, a native of London, was sentenced to three life terms plus 110 years without parole. He is serving his time in ADX Florence, a super maximum security prison in Colorado. Let him try to light one of his cardboard flip-flops there. It was in Paris that I offered Diane the ring. We were in a wonderful restaurant called the Lilo Vache, which means the Island of the Cows, which was what that part of the Ile Saint-Louis was once called, directly across the street from our hotel. It was roughly midnight. We had just ordered dessert, chocolate mousse, served from a huge communal tureen. It was a wonderful moment, primarily because this, this fabulous woman said yes. The entire restaurant staff came out of the kitchen to applaud us. Magic. We were so jazzed up that we walked around the city until the sun came up. We came home to California and set a wedding date, July 14th, Bastille Day, 2002. Okay, so recapping the action thus far, we experienced a super intense autumn of 2001, pervaded by both a sense of post-traumatic tragedy and an inexplicable sense of aliveness. Diane and I were engaged in our mutually favorite city, Paris, France. We were to be married 
on what is the French Independence Day, July 14th. And I would add that we were both Francophiles, though while my French is abysmal, Diane's was excellent. And since she was blonde and quite beautiful, <laughs> I am neither, French people were actually quite willing to listen to her speak French. We were married at the Men's Faculty Club on the campus of the University of California, Berkeley. Rather than engage a band, we hired a disc jockey to play music at the reception. And so, given everything just described, the question, what music were we going to have the DJ play for our first dance? Color My World by Chicago? We've Only Just Begun by The Carpenters? Voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir by Lady Marmalade? No to all of those suggestions. In fact, the choice was an absolute no-brainer. Our first dance would be to the Paris-born Edith Piaf, 1915-1963, singing her signature song, the song that made her an international star, La Vie en Rose. La Vie en Rose was written in liberated Paris in 1945, with its words by Piaf and music by Louis Guglielmo, 1916-1991, a Paris conservatoire-trained composer who went by the name of Louis Guy. Literally translated as Life in Pink, La Vie en Rose is best translated as Life Seen Through Rose-Colored Glasses. The song is about the joy of finding true love. I thought that love was just a word they sang about in songs I heard. It took your kisses to reveal that I was wrong and love is real. Give your heart and soul to me and life will always be la vie en rose. Given current events, and our own experiences there in 2001 and 2002, La Vie en Rose was the perfect song for Diane and me. Edith Piaf lived through tragic, dangerous times. Nevertheless, in La Vie en Rose, she summoned better times ahead, with love as the newfound anchor in her life. A change in meaning. Diane and I made our own babies, Lily in 2006 and Danny in 2008. And then, as many of you know, we lost Diane to cancer on October 16, 2009. She had just turned 35 on August 30th. With Diane's death, the ongoing tragedy that was Edith Piaf's short life took on new meaning for me as did the song La Vie en Rose, which suddenly became a complex and melancholy pain to love lost. I will admit that until last week, I hadn't listened to La Vie en Rose since Diane's death, and that listening to it now and writing this post has been something of an emotional roller coaster. Neither had I watched Marion Cotillard's Oscar-winning performance as Edith Piaf 
in the 2007 biopic entitled La Vie en Rose until just last week. It is a devastating movie, and Cotillard's performance is nothing short of astonishing. When we return in tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post, we will trace the outlines of Edith Piaf's life as illustrated with scenes from the movie. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.